0: Welcome to the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of October the 25th, 2021. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. This is Ed Zollers here in Phoenix, where I'm back after my first trip of the year going anywhere. So it's, it's been interesting. Actually, it's been the first trip in 18 months uh, to do a session in front of some uh, individuals uh, in New York. So it was, you know, in New York State, I should say. So, you know, essentially we had a few things go on. So it's kind of interesting getting back out there, seeing how airplanes look again. Uh, they still look the same, and it's still as much of a problem or, let's say, as inconvenience of dealing with the planes as it always was. So it's like, hey, some things don't change. So we're there. But this week we'll take a look, and DC has been a hurry up and wait again this week. Uh, we'll talk about the fact we started the week. Uh, with the um, with the head of the Senate, you know, in this case, coming out here, the majority leader telling us that, hey, we're going to get an agreement, we think, by the end of the week. And then we uh, found out that Senator Schumer was a little bit optimistic, shall we say. So we still don't have anything. We've had some more discussions. There's been some more talk about what would or wouldn't happen. But so far, not much there. We'll talk about that briefly. The IRS issued an FAQ. That discussed an issue if a business that is facing or a business or, in this case, school district was one of the things that we're using as an example, is facing a staffing shortage and they rehire a retired employee. Does that cause any problems with the qualified retirement plan? So we'll have a little discussion about how that could work. We'll also discuss a appeals panel that uh, ruled, as we had discussed back in 2019, I believe it was, that. Yeah, the claim of right doctrine didn't work for a taxpayer who had a specific problem with the trustee of their grant or trust who managed to sell some stock they weren't supposed to sell. And so we got into that issue and how it works. And finally, something else we discussed earlier this year, that the IRS was working on a form that would be submitted with forms 1040 to document basis in S corporations in any case where a taxpayer claimed any loss from the S corporation or had a distribution or repayment of debt and it looks like we're seriously going to do it now we have the draft version of that form out as well as the draft instructions for Schedule E that tell us we are to attach that form in those situations so we'll discuss where that stands what it means and what we should be worrying about. So we'll take a look at that. With that, let's discuss here briefly again this week the situation in D.C. As I said, Senator Schumer indicated early in the week that he thought they could get a deal done by the end of the week. Uh, we're at the end of the week and passed it. And no, there's no deal. So we're still working on things. There, has, there have been definitely discussions during the week. Uh, again, it looks like the total cost of the package would be somewhere around two trillion. That does mean, which is the problem we have as tax advisors, that even though we have a bill in the Ways and Means Committee that has a bunch of tax provisions, many of which are revenue raisers, and those would be the ones many of our clients would be concerned about. What we know for sure is, if they don't need 3.5 trillion, that gets rid of the need for a bit of the revenue raising, but obviously not all of it. So our question is going to become, well, how much do we need? You know, and how much revenue needs to be raised? And that's something that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what they cut back. We don't know. There are still a number of provisions in there. We still have, you know, at this point in time, they've done no cutting. There was a lot of discussion this week about the bank reporting rules, which I should point out are not in the Ways and Means Committee draft, nor to date does it appear that the chair of Ways and Means has signed off on going along with any of that stuff. His his comment is he needs language before he's going to talk about any of it, and he did not put it in the bill that Ways and Means passed. So we'll have to see what's going on. There has been discussion to move the $600 trigger to $10,000, and in theory it would be $10,000 of transactions, but we would eliminate... Uh, certain things that the IRS supposedly doesn't need to know more about, like wages, etc., they have reporting. The mechanics of how that would work would obviously be crucial. And then what the IRS does with that would also be crucial. And right now, while there's a lot of heat generated about it, frankly, we just don't know, you know, until language. As Representative Neal says, you know, essentially without language, it's it's a lot of heat but not a whole lot of information you can glean as to what you would do, could do, how you work with it, and all the issues. You just got to sit and wait and see real language at some point if they're going forward with that, which also is not clear. We also heard some discussion that Senator Cinema, who's the other senator that's been balking at voting for the package in the Senate, uh, that she objects to some of the higher tax rate issues. What that means exactly, which rates she doesn't want to see move, and remember, tax rate does not mean being against increasing rates does not mean being against increasing a tax. So you've got to remember that it may or may not be good for you if she gets through her. Yeah, we're not going to increase the top rate, but something else that is important to your client ends up coming in place of that. So keep your eye on that. And again, don't forget, there are some major changes in here that would affect any grantor or trust planning for estate planning. And that includes most life insurance trusts would be in that mix as well, as well as obviously any any intentionally defective grantor trusts would become kind of worthless going forward. Right now the draft would have those trusts if they were established after the end of this year, that they would just be included in the grantor's estate. Similarly, if they you fund an existing one after the end of this year, that also comes in the estate. Where will it would be a week from now, I don't know. Like I've said before many times, Congress, once they decide something, it would probably move very quickly. Uh, and until then, though, it could take many weeks. We could be sitting here in December, still talking about what they're doing about this bill, or even in January with retroactive effective dates, being talking about stuff. So, like I say, we just don't know. Keep your eyes on D.C., but there's really not much we can do right now. Okay, let's go to our first development for the week. And we'd already talked about last week the IRS and FAQs and what you can rely or can't rely. So understanding that you can't fully rely on this, we nevertheless have guidance from the IRS. And as I noted last week, take that can't rely on it with a bit of grain of salt. It would be difficult for the IRS to back off this position. You know, I remember, you know, we talked about the Brobalt case. And how the IRS, even though they got a straight up court win and therefore could very well have simply gone forward and forced the change on everybody, including effectively retroactively, because, you know, the court ruled that was always the law. Uh, they didn't. So I'd say you you can rely generally upon this. Just, you know, don't go too far afield from it is the catch. So what they're talking about here is an issue. Some employers have as the IRS, and a, in significant, I guess significant group, were school districts that led to this. You know, they're having staffing issues to get enough people to come in and staff. It may be the classroom. It may be school buses we have serious issues with at this point. Uh, you know, cases like that, for various reasons post-COVID, we're having staffing issues. And, you know, the reasons are many. Uh, We don't have to worry about why. That's one that political affiliation has a big influence on the reasons one believes. I happen to believe the reasons may be a mix of many. uh, And no single one is a magic bullet that solves the problem. But nevertheless, they don't have it. So they're saying, well, we've got some people that took retirement. And our plan says you can't take an in-service distribution. So they retired and began being paid out. Now, the question becomes, some of them vindicated, they'd be willing to come back and work to fill the staffing problem. But can we actually do that because our plan does not allow for in-service distributions? Therefore, we have to have a bona fide retirement for them to start being paid. And now our question becomes, if we bring them back and start paying them on the payroll again, do we have a potential qualification problem with our plan because we started paying out to somebody effectively in service because they didn't have a bona fide retirement well the irs has said look we understand the unusual situation as long as there is a real staffing problem you know there really has been a problem we can't get people we've got shortages and in reaction to that which was an unforeseeable circumstance at the time that this person retired that you need to bring them back That will not be considered a lack of a bona fide retirement on the original retirement date. And that will not cause you any problems in terms of plan qualification because you, you know, apparently allowed for a quote unquote in-service distribution, at least if you believe the person was never actually retired. IRS points out, we're fine. It doesn't really matter about that. But they do warn you because what they're ruling here is that's just the way the law works. You can bring somebody back if circumstances arise that was not foreseeable. The concern in the regulations is if there's a pre-arranged, you know, kind of agreement that this person's gonna quote retire, quote unquote, for the next year or so. And then all oh, will suddenly decide, oh, we need to bring him back because of whatever reason we invent that we need to bring this person back and suddenly they'll be back on the payroll. Well, the IRS says this isn't the case. As long as there's that bona fide problem, uh, we're not going to look too deep at it. We're good. But the IRS does remind you that because they are simply, and this is practically why this is there, they're simply interpreting the law as it exists and said, this would never have been a problem, period. Again, this sort of unforeseeable situation is one that just, you know, would never have caused a problem with raising a question as to where the previous retiree is bona fide. But they do remind you that you need to look at other plan provisions. Because again, you know, what does this do to the amount of benefits they get? Do they come back in? When will they get contributions if they're back in the plan? Are they allowed to continue to receive distributions? They say, you've got to realize that all the other plan terms still apply. So... You know, we're going to say it's not a problem having let them out, but you still may need to do things like stop their distributions. However, the IRS notes, look, a plan can allow for in-service distributions. You can have a plan that allows you to take distributions while the person is still working. That's okay. Generally, they can do that as long as the in-service distributions don't occur until after the individual reaches age 59 and a half or until the plan's normal retirement date. You can hook it to either one of those. The IRS noted that if they're taking them and they're under age 59 and a half and they're getting in-service distributions, that's going to be subject to the 10% early distribution penalty. So, yeah, don't look at that. But the IRS said, but th- you know, basically updating your plan to allow for in-service distributions could allow you to retain people and instead of people retiring because that's the only way I can access these funds, you could generally let them start taking their retirement pay and yet still pay them on the payroll and that would be allowable under the plan. So that's something you might want to consider if you're having all these staffing problems trying to get enough people to work for you. So something to consider. Next up, we're going to consider a case from the Seventh Circuit this is hiding versus the united states this is a seventh circuit panel case number 19 cv 224 the decision came down on the 19th of october and this case actually is one we had discussed before basically they had a situation like this the taxpayers had essentially put their investment funds put various funds and various stocks bonds etc into and a trust it was a trust they had the right to terminate any time so and take the funds back out so it's a grantor trust but they weren't self-trusteeing this and we see this you know with larger amounts we see this from time to time where they just turn it over to let's say a trust department which they did here and the trust department will manage the investments in accordance with the trust document as a trust department would do so That was the situation. So we still have like traditional grant or trust. We're still going to have these people pay tax on any gains, losses incurred by the trust. They'll pay tax on the income. They'll still be treated as the tax owner of the assets. And they literally can reach in and just take out whatever they want. Now, one of the terms of the trust barred the trustee from selling specific stock. They couldn't sell nor buy stock in a specific publicly traded company that essentially this group, these people owned a lot of. And they had been involved with the company previously, as I recall, original case. So there was this special category of stock they really couldn't deal with. But otherwise, they had full discretion to buy and sell everything else. Well, apparently somebody at the trust department didn't get the memo, didn't look at the trust, and managed to sell the stock, generating a multi-million dollar gain. Now, obviously, that was a problem because, of course, the, the uh, beneficiaries, right, the grantors and effective beneficiaries of the trust said, uh, guys, you weren't supposed to sell that stock. At you know, while you had full discretion everywhere else, I'm sure somebody did a rebalancing, said, oh, man, they're way too heavy in this company. Well, that was kind of intended to stay put. So what happened in this case is the trust did sell the stock. Eventually, down the line in the following year, they bought the stock back, but just bought it back on the open market. They'd sold it to the open market. They bought it back on the open market. Now some of you may understand what's called the claim of right doctrine. And the claim of right doctrine is found in the code. right? Claim of right is a statutory right under Section uh, 1341 that allows a taxpayer who receives funds that they have the unrestricted use of, but which later determine they have to return. If that happens, when you receive those funds that you have unrestricted use of, you're not allowed to say, I'm not paying tax on those now because I might have to give them back. Rather, you pay tax currently. Then if the amount in question is more than 3000 if it's less than 3000 you just get an itemized deduction uh, that is not subject to the 2% haircut. So you just get a straight additional deduction on Schedule A, so if you can itemize. But if it's above 3000 you have two choices. You can either take that deduction on Schedule A, or you can get a tax credit equal to the extra tax you paid in the year you had to pick that up. Now, in this case, the beneficiaries said, well, you know, we, we think that works in this case. You know, they sold the stock, we had the cash, but late, but it turns out, you know, the trust needed to... Uh, fix that problem so they couldn't retain the cash and so because of that we as the deemed owners should still be able to avail ourselves of the claim of right doctrine so when in the following year yet there's no question we, we pay tax in year one on the sale but in the following year when they actually went and got the stock got stock back again not the same stock because of course you know you can't it's let's face you sold a public market you're going to have a you know maybe theoretically you could figure out exactly who you sold it to and maybe theoretically you could get those shares back but even then that party's under no obligation to sell them back to you so you know you couldn't just void the transaction rather you just had a separate buy at the trial court, the trial court said, look, there are a couple of problems with this. And basically, they're these. First, you know, you as the beneficiary were the only party that could, t- you know, you had a perfect right since since you could withdraw the funds. You could take them out. You could terminate the trust. You had a perfect right to retain those funds. No legal duty would force you, taxpayers, to return those funds for any reason because you were, the tru- you were the, basically the person that had a right to terminate the trust and keep the funds. The only issue would be the trust. And again, the trust itself was also under no obligation. You could approve the sale. The trust said as long as you approve the sale, the trust was allowed to sell that stock. Obviously, you could just say, okay, I know you sold it. You didn't ask us first, but we're fine with it. So you could bless the sale. There was nothing there that said, you know, you had to return those funds. Now, the taxpayer argued that, well, no, no, you look at this at the trust level. Even though it's a grantor trust and we're deemed to be the owners, we look at whether the trust was required to do this. And the court said, well, a couple of problems with that. First, the trust was only conditionally required to return it, even if we buy this theory. That we'd have to look at the trust. The trust was not absolutely required to undo the transaction. They only had to do it if you came in and said, undo that. We will not allow this to be sold, which we should point out, the court notes, you never did. You never actually filed a formal complaint. You never took legal action to force the trustee to do this. The trustee did it. Right? Maybe your theory was if they did it, you could use claim of right. I suspect that's what you thought. And the appellate court, who happened to agree with this, said, you know what? Um, this actually isn't a true reversal. Anytime you're going to sell into the public market, you can't really undo that transaction. You came back many months later and bought shares the price of those shares will be radically different could very well be radically different by that time from the price cost you received initially so you're not even just returning the funds that you got from the sale rather you are you know just buying stock and because of that essentially you know these two transactions aren't a problem Right. You you can't ever reverse this. It's not like something that a state court could have ruled a void transaction. There's no way to reverse this. There's no way to fix it. They said, fundamentally, this transaction never could meet claim of right. I don't care how you looked at it. Um, As we say, it's an issue. I'm certain the trust department's not thrilled with this because they may now face a claim from the taxpayer asking, to receive the extra tax they paid, the tax they paid on that gain, they had to recognize when the stock was sold initially. You know, So we may have a problem there that to make us whole, you should restore the tax we paid because if, as was probably their plan, we were going to hold this stock in the trust until we died. And I believe this was a Wisconsin case, so it would be community property most likely. So I need one to die. Uh, then it would have gotten a separate basis. The tax on that gain would never have been paid. You know, as long as we get one spouse, by if, as long as we hold it till one spouse dies. So I think the bank probably considers this, not the bank trust department considers this, not necessarily be a win. I think they consider this to be a problem. Obviously, the taxpayers are probably going to file a claim with the trust department and the trust department's very likely going to be stuck writing checks. At this point because they didn't notice that special rule but again we talked about this when it first occurred at the district court level this now has a court of appeals at the Seventh Circuit saying yeah the district court judge got none of this wrong it's that's the way this works the claim of right won't be there but keep claim of right in mind for cases where there is a true reversal uh, you know you have to remember that because failing to notice claim of right can cause you issues Uh, One of the key issues with claim of right is to understand that the recognition up front, you know, and where this most often comes up that I see is where someone has been hired. They've been paid a signing bonus, but they have to repay the signing bonus if they don't stay with the company for, you know, two, three years. If they get a better offer and they leave the company. Then they'll pay it back in that later year. That's when you tend to see claim of right come into play, where you have to repay something that was included in income. And remember, in that case, you have either the deduction or you can use the tax credit. Most often, as long as they have enough tax, the tax credit gives you the best result. It puts you back to normal. But also check in those cases what the state or states involved are going to do with this because states have different claim of right rules and they don't necessarily have the same credit option that we have at the federal level and they may require you to use the federal uh, deduction amount to get any benefit at the state level so you got to keep your eye on these issues finally the IRS released late this week form 7203 in draft form now we had discussed form 7203 This is a form that will be as part of the tax return and therefore as part of the actual XML portion of the electronic file someplace the IRS can pick it up in the computer and look for it easily. The calculation of basis for an S corporation shareholder. It will be attached to the form 1040 in various situations. Now a little ahead of this we did get a Hint of this late in September, the draft instructions for Schedule E came out for 2021 returns. Those draft instructions indicated when you would have to file Form 7203. It mentioned Form 7203 specifically, and it tells you that if you're claiming a deduction for a loss, if you got a distribution from the S Corp, or if a debt, if there was any repayment on a debt that's owed to the taxpayer by the S-Corporation, the Form 7203 must be attached to the return and completed. Previously, we had to do a plain paper statement in these cases, which is different and the IRS will have a tougher time dealing with. Now we're going to have an actual form. And again, per the scheduling instructions, it appears we're going to put this on the 2021 return. So it's not going to be possible to easily skate by not having computed bases in an escort. It's also going to force the issue a bit more for taxpayers who are filing using things like TurboTax. Right? They'll suddenly discover that they can't process this at all unless they get the 7203 in there and they've got to put something there that the IRS will pick up. So I expect we'll see some crises out there. Uh, I mean, honestly, everybody's supposed to have known their basis for years. Honestly, you can't really claim a loss unless you can prove you got basis. You also can't exclude a repayment of a debt or a distribution from income unless you can prove basis. And so, yeah, this this sets up an interesting problem. Now, as we discussed back in July when they did the first draft, and that was an odd one because in July they put it in the Federal Register, and if you got in quickly, they, they said email this person uh, basically to get the information and to and this is where you would submit comments. Well, if you got in early because the Federal Register said you could get the draft from him, you actually got the draft. I got a copy of the draft. It is not really changed at all in this version. I got a copy, though, of the internal draft. That was what was unusual when I got it. It clearly said internal use only version of the draft from January. Uh, and then they had draft instructions, which also interesting enough, we don't have the draft instructions out, even the draft, even the draft instructions that I got back at that time did not indicate they were internal use only. They look like standard draft documents you'd see on the IRS website. Well, now this has come out in standard form on the IRS website. So now I feel comfortable in this week's document in this week's PDF of the articles, or if you go online, on, the, on our website, CurrentFoldTaxTemples.com, and read the article about this, we have actual, you know, we actually give you images of the actual items, the sections of this form you'll be filling in. And they're based, as I noted back in July when we first discussed this, they're based on the worksheets that you find in the Schedule K-1 instructions. So the first section of this, part one, you compute your stock basis, And if there's a gain on distribution, you will calculate that there at the stock level. In the Part 2, which actually has two pieces, this deals with debt basis and gain on repayment. You'll have a Part A where you just tell them what the balance of the debt is and whether the debt is open account debt or there's a formal note. Now, that does make a big difference in how it's treated. And you should also remember that open account debt at the end of the year that goes in excess of $25,000 with an end of year balance will effectively convert to a formal note debt. And the problem is open account debt, you can net advances and repayments on the note. So the fact that maybe you ate into that note, uh, you know, they they took a repayment on it in January of $3,000. They then turn it, but you turn around and you loan at least that three grand back by the end of the year. They don't have a gain. If that's not open account debt and that's note debt, doesn't matter. You send the three grand back. You're going to still pay tax on that distribution if you don't get your basis restored. And that's something that, you know, the open account, the strict note is going to be a little more of an issue in that regard. Now, the other difference in the two is if you have a repayment of, of open account debt, that's going to be considered ordinary income. If you have a repayment on a note, that'll be a capital gain type of income, long-term or short-term based on the holding period of the note at the time of repayment. So that'll be the key. So we do the amount first, and then on the second part, which is on page two of the document, of the form, we'll walk through the basis computation as well as coming up with any gain on distribution. Final section of this form You'll have the allowed losses for the year and whether they're allowed against stock or debt. And then you will have the disallowed losses for the year, the carryover, which you'll then pick up next year on the Form 7203 and pull forward. So due to all of this, we're going to have a lot more emphasis on S-corporation basis computations. That's going to have a couple of impacts on you. First, if you prepare S-returns, don't be surprised if now this year you get a lot of questions for historical documents. Technically, the S corporation is not required to compute bases for shareholders. I know a lot of tax software does it. I also know some some CPAs and even some of us who speak on the circuit, you know, will advise against doing that for non-clients because there are things you might not know. And you can't know for sure you've got that basis right. But if you've been going that route, don't be surprised if you're asked to do some really heavy digging in the past to discover what this person's basis is as they try to reconstruct it. Because suddenly this is going on the form in a way that's going to be very easy to see. And the IRS is going to ask for this form very possibly if it's not included. So they may ask you to fill it in and please give it to them. Or as I expect with electronic filing, we're just going to reject off without this. And while yes, they were rejecting without the plain paper statement, let's face it—you you could have put probably anything in there. The odds are the IRS would never see it. This one, the IRS is going to be able to follow and follow from year to year, and then tie back. So even if the beginning basis numbers are wrong, uh, eventually they're going to pick up if you've you know even with those numbers that you've run out of basis. And those numbers will come into play for other uses. So, yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting time and we're going to have some interesting issues. Well, this has been the tax update, current federal tax developments, for the week of October the 25th. Uh, as always, you can email me, Zollers at com. Uh, if you have a quick question. I also pay attention to the uh, Connect sites for the Arizona Society, New Jersey, uh illinois minnesota washington uh doing that i just got done doing the washington tax conference virtually on friday after my day of doing live uh which was interesting i got to fly across country and then lecture the next day again it was like wow i hadn't done that in a while uh but we'll be answering on those locations i also take a look at the idaho society's website uh and the post questions there uh just reminder, those of you from idaho i will be Presenting this week, uh, it will be all virtual. Um, worked out that that was what people wanted, so that's what we're doing. We're doing all virtual there. Uh, but it will be this week, one on the general legislation and update situation we have for the year, including discussing the proposed legislation to some extent, to the extent of what we know. And then, of course, on estates and trust, where we'll also spend time understanding the Idaho Uniform Principal of Income Act, which is crucial to actually being able to do properly a Form 1041. With that, though, I'll see you all next week back here. We'll see what happens. We'll see if Congress does anything. And in any event, we'll be back here next week for more current federal tax developments.